Genesis 22, verses 1 to 19. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Morai. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took his two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he sent out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his knife, his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Thank you, Tani. Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you again at City. Uh, if you've not yet uh, come to visit the congregation at East, do, do, do think about doing that um, one Sunday. Uh, maybe not all together, because I'll probably get in trouble um, at both ends, I would think. Um, but uh, it's good to be reminded that we are part of one big family, and you would be so welcome if you just wanted to pop in and visit us at Woodlands Community College one Sunday morning. Uh, can you please keep that passage open, Genesis uh, 22, and let me lead us in prayer as we look at this together. Father, we thank you for your living word. And as we look at this passage together this morning, I want to very simply pray, Lord, that you would teach us your ways. 
And in particular, Lord, teach us your ways about the testing of faith. We ask this in the Lord Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I don't imagine that uh, many of us take pleasure in the thought of facing a test. Uh, whether it's an eye test, which beyond the need for glasses may diagnose some terrible unexpected disease, taking a car in for its MOT test, which can lead to a huge mechanics bill, that dreaded call from your GP to discuss your test results, the teacher who announces with some delight a surprise test of your learning, and then of course there's test match cricket, which for one good friend of mine translates to painfully long and very boring. That word test just seems loaded, doesn't it, with so much negativity. We associate it with pain, waiting, cost, uncertainty, fear of failure. And so it comes as a surprise to us when we read in the Bible, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials or tests of many kinds. This idea of facing a test with joy, it just doesn't feel quite right to us. Uh, not helped, of course, by uh, some well-meaning Christians who, in tough times, might say to you carelessly, praise God, consider it pure joy, rejoice in the Lord always. Those sort of chocolate box verses, you know, that people throw out at you when you're really going through it. Well, Genesis 22 is all about faith being tested. Uh, we know that because uh, the narrator gives the game away uh, right in the opening verse. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Uh, notice that God, not the devil, is doing the testing here. And because the rest of the Bible teaches us that the God of uh, Abraham is by nature good, so we can be sure that God has in mind only good intentions here. Indeed, the very best intentions imaginable. The psalmist says, as for God, his way is perfect. Now remember, in the New Testament, Abraham is the father of all who believe. So if you're a believer in Jesus this morning... Or indeed, if you're looking into the Christian faith and you're wondering what being a Christian might be like, well, you should expect that from time to time, God will test you. It's the normal Christian life. And let me say that when God tests you, this is never a sign that he doesn't love you. Quite the opposite. When God tests our faith, it is a sign of his perfect fatherly love. Because he knows that faith doesn't usually grow much when life is rosy and everything is going swimmingly. I don't know about you, but in my own life, those are usually the times when I forget God or get complacent or proud. No, God knows that as with Abraham, faith grows when it's tested. And sometimes, as here in Genesis 22, when it is stretched right to the limit. So this morning, I want to draw out from our passage three timeless truths concerning the testing of faith. Three things that were true for Abraham, the man of faith back then in the ancient Near East, and three things that remain true for all people of Christian faith today. First then, from verses 1 to 10, God tests our faith to prove that it is genuine. God tests our faith to prove that it is genuine. Over recent weeks, we've seen God growing Abraham's faith, haven't we? And growth is needed because the story so far shows that his faith is a bit of a mixed bag, really. Sometimes he trusts God and his promises and he acts accordingly. Other times, not so much, like when he acts out of fear, pretends that his wife is his sister. But isn't that just like your faith and mine? Bit of a mixed bag? Sometimes we trust God and his promises, don't we? Other times, not so much. But Abraham now faces what we might consider to be the ultimate test of faith. 
one that might shock and horrify us. Because God says, verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. And now Abraham had waited 30 years for the birth of Isaac, and his birth was a miracle, because Abraham and Sarah were way past the age of childbearing. His other son, uh, Ishmael, son of the slave woman, he's already out of the picture, sent away to live in the desert. But as for Isaac, well, back in chapter 17, verse 21, God promises explicitly, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. And so if Isaac is now sacrificed, well, surely that leaves God's covenant promise in tatters, completely shredded. But it's the ultimate test, of course, for another reason. Because here God appears to be acting in complete contradiction to his nature. Against everything Abraham knows about him. Other nations would sacrifice children. But as God will later declare through the prophet Jeremiah, I did not command or mention it, nor did it enter my mind. And yet here, apparently, sacrificing a child does enter God's mind. Uh, We're left to imagine how well Abraham slept that night. What we do know is that he responds to God's unsettling command with total obedience. Look with me at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And then notice his great declaration of faith to his servants as they close in on Mount Moriah. Verse 5, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And then notice, we will come back to you. And as we'll learn, this is not mere wishful thinking, nor is he trying to protect Isaac from the harsh reality. Now, Isaac is clearly a bright spark, isn't he? An A-star student. He spots the one crucial thing missing from the supplies. And we can't help but be moved by the innocence of the boy's question. In verse 7, Father, yes, my son, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And again, Abraham speaks from a heart that is clearly trusting in his God. Verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I want you to try and imagine reading this account for the very first time. Feel the suspense the narrator is building through this touching dialogue and this gradual movement of Abraham and Isaac towards Mount Moriah. And I think we're meant to be asking ourselves, well, hold on, how far will this test go? Surely he won't actually, will he? And after the altar is built and Isaac bound on the wood, we reach this chilling climax in verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. What is going through Abraham's mind in this moment, we wonder? As he ties up Isaac, lays him on the altar, grabs the knife. But actually, we don't need to wonder because the writer of Hebrews tells us exactly what was going on in his mind. Hebrews chapter 11, the the gallery of people of faith and what they did by faith, we're told this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would embrace the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now listen to what was going on in his mind. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Here is faith in action, you see. 
Back in chapter 15, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. He was made righteous simply by believing God and his promises. But now God tests Abraham's faith by stretching it right to the limit to prove that it is genuine. Because true faith is not only a matter of belief. No, true faith leads to action and impacts the way that I live my life. And that's the very point that James makes in the New Testament when he explains how as Christians we're to interpret this account. Uh, It's an important principle in your own Bible reading, by the way. Uh, When a New Testament writer refers to an Old Testament passage and teaches something from it, as Christians, uh, we should allow the New Testament teaching to control our understanding of the old. Uh, If we do that, we avoid all kinds of uh, weird and wacky interpretations of the Old Testament, like the preacher who took us his text, uh, Exodus 1.16, and taught that the legs of the midwife's stool each represent the three persons of the uh, Trinity. Uh, I think we can safely say, probably not. Uh, So turn with me, please, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 over in the New Testament. It's page 1214, if you're in a church Bible. James chapter 2. Now, James is um, arguing here that faith which doesn't lead to action is not true saving faith. Uh, We're going to pick up the argument in verse 19. James writes, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, verse 6. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. Now, we have to be really careful here not to misunderstand what James is teaching. He is not contradicting Paul, who says that righteousness is a gift from God through faith in Jesus. He's not saying that Abraham was only made righteous at the point that he offered up Isaac. That's not the sense in which Genesis 15 verse 6 was fulfilled. No, Abraham's faith was fulfilled in the sense of being made complete. His actions confirmed that his faith was genuine because you know it is possible to have a kind of faith that believes in the existence of God believes that the Bible is true even believes that Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead but if I only ever believe those things intellectually in my head maybe because they've been passed down to me from my parents but if it makes no difference whatsoever to the way that I live my life day by day well that is not true saving faith Imagine a a fully trained plumber, if you can ever find one available, but a fully trained plumber who has never so much as fixed a dripping tap. Or a fully qualified teacher who has never been in a classroom and taught anyone. Or imagine an office worker who has the lanyard and the, the photo ID, but has never so much as stepped inside an office. Well, for two years they probably didn't because everything was on Zoom, but you get the point. See, the training, the qualifications, the ID, they're only made complete when the plumber does some plumbing, the teacher does some teaching, and the office worker sits on a swivel chair and does some office work. And in the same way, a claim to Christian faith is only made complete by Christian actions and lifestyle. 
and doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for every single one of us in Christ to do. And you know, if my faith is not leading to any action at all, not making any meaningful difference to my day-to-day life, well, James would warn me very seriously, that is a dead faith. He uses those words, verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's the same faith the devil himself has. He believes all those same facts about God, the Bible, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, but he never turns from evil. So that is why as Christians we should, as Peter puts it, greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Not rejoicing in the trials themselves in some kind of masochistic way, but rejoicing, well, listen again to Peter, because these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Back in Genesis 22, was it a loving, fatherly thing for God to stretch Abraham's faith to the limit, ask him to sacrifice his son? Couldn't he just have said, look, Abraham, if I were to say to you to to give up your son for me, would, would you do that? Well, we can all be heroes of faith in theory, can't we? We could say to Jesus like Peter, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And see, we often miss the fact that as Matthew tells us, all the other disciples said the same. Yet at the critical moment, they all deserted Jesus. You know and I know that it is only when the heat is on, when we show what's really in our hearts, It's only when we're under intense pressure that our true character reveals itself. It's only when we're confronted with the very real prospect of losing something or someone precious to us or with a terminal diagnosis or not getting the job that we thought was ours or being unable to pay the rent or a bill or a whole host of other trials, small and large. It is only then that our faith is proved to be genuine or not. And I want to suggest that it would be the most unloving thing for God to leave people thinking that they're saved when they're not, with fake faith. Or leave true faith untested so that I'm unprepared for the great storms of life. You know, sometimes a test can turn counterfeit faith into the genuine article. Other times, baby faith grows into adult faith. Or adult faith becomes mature faith. But all the time, God is working for the good of those who love him and indeed for the good of those that he wants to bring into a relationship of love with him. Isn't it true that often people don't think about God until life falls apart? We have to see the grace of God in that. God tests our faith to prove it is genuine. But secondly, verses 11 to 14, God provides for us when he tests us. God provides for us when he tests us. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised that God's timing is perfect as he delivers Abraham from this ultimate test and provides for him. But we're to be in no doubt, Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. That's why the narrator stresses that it goes right down to the wire before the angel of the Lord calls out, verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Interesting, isn't it? God wants to know if Abraham fears him. You ever noticed that before in Genesis 22? It's not something we talk about much today, the fear of the Lord. 
which I think is a real tragedy because to fear God is actually a most precious and beautiful thing. And we're not talking the fear of an unbeliever who's terrified of his judgment. No, no, God's love drives out that kind of fear. We're talking here reverent fear, being in awe of and delighting in our holy, majestic, glorious Father in heaven. To fear God means to take him and his word seriously. To fear God is to shun evil, to love him so much that I desperately want to avoid offending him. According to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want to be a wise person who lives wisely? Learn to fear God. Proverbs also says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Do you want to live life to the full, that abundant life that Jesus promises? Learn to fear God. And what we see in Genesis 22 is that to fear God means holding everything that he gives me with a light touch. My job, my career, my skills, my home, my friends, my health, my money, my possessions, my spouse, yes, even my children. To fear God means I withhold nothing, no one, no aspect of my life from him. Not even that which is most precious to me. Or as Gollum would say in the Lord of the Rings, and I won't do the voice, I leave those to Chris, he's much better at them. My precious. What is your precious, I wonder? What is mine? What is our precious at Above Bar Church? Do we know? The Lord certainly knows. And that may well be where he chooses to test us during this time of leadership transition. Psalmist prays, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And that is what is happening to Abraham. God is testing whether or not his heart is undivided, whether it's whole, whether it's not being pulled in different directions. Is Abraham genuinely trusting in God now and his promises, or is he actually trusting in Isaac? Or is he trusting partly in God and partly in Isaac? Well, God concludes that because Abraham doesn't withhold his son, his only son, his heart is undivided. He fears God. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning to ask the Lord to give you an undivided heart that you may fear his name. Because you know, if you learn to fear God and withhold nothing from him, you will never again need to fear anyone or anything else. But be aware, God may answer prayers like that in surprising ways. I remember when uh, Lansdowne Baptist Church in Bournemouth were considering if they would uh, send me out to Bible college and support me studying at Bible college. And in my youthful enthusiasm, I remember one day praying something like, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. It's all on the line. I'll go wherever you call me. If you want me to train to be the minister of a church, so be it. If you want me to clean toilets, so be it. That was my prayer. Uh, well, Lansdowne Baptist Church did agree to support me studying at Bible college. And on the first day of college, we were all assigned uh, various duties. Uh, you're ahead of me, aren't you? <laughs> oh, yes. The Lord took me at my word, tested what was in my heart, and at Bible college, part of my ministry training was to learn to clean toilets to the glory of God. Be careful how you pray. <laughs> well, notice in verse 13 how God provides exactly what is needed, just as Abraham told Isaac that he would. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. I want you to note that strange little detail about the ram caught by its horns. Why on earth do we need to know that? 
Well, surely it shows that the ram is God's provision. Think about it. A ram caught by its wool or its flesh would be torn and damaged, unsuitable for a sacrifice. But a ram caught by its solid horns is unblemished. So verse 14, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. More literally, the Lord sees. He sees the need for a sacrifice and he provides a substitute, an innocent lamb instead of Isaac. That is in the place of Isaac. And so to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And if you've remembered to bring your New Testament reading glasses with you this morning, you should already be seeing another son setting out setting his face to and moving towards this very same location in AD 33. Also carrying wood on his back until Simon of Cyrene is press-ganged into carrying the cross for him. Moriah is no longer a mountain out in the countryside. Now it's the site of a vibrant commercial city called Jerusalem. And this son also has a very poignant question for his father. Except this time Jesus doesn't address God as father. Instead, he cries out in a loud voice on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because this time there is no substitute lamb. Jesus is the unblemished lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our substitute, his death in my place and yours. You see, God did not withhold his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. But please don't listen to any nonsense about this being cosmic child abuse. No, the son tells us in his own words, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And take it up again he did. But unlike Isaac, Jesus didn't come back from death in a manner of speaking. Now he was innocent of any sin or crime, so he quite literally came back from death to life and is now reunited with his Father in heaven. And you know, brothers and sisters, because God has provided for our greatest of all needs, because on the mountain of the Lord it has now been provided by the death and resurrection of Jesus, well, so if you find yourself this morning in the midst of any trial, any test, any temptation, because God has done the greater thing, you could be confident that he will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. Indeed, he will provide a way out for you so that you can endure it, even if for some, that may well be the ultimate way out, going to be with the Lord, which is better by far. Which brings us to our third and final timeless truth. God tests our faith to prove it is genuine. God provides for us when he tests us. Then briefly, very briefly, so our time is uh, well gone. God promises eternal blessing after testing. Look at verse 15 with me. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Abraham has passed this ultimate test of faith. He's demonstrated to God that he really does believe him and his promises. And you notice he's no longer trying to make God's promises happen, but now he's trusting God to do his work in his way and in his perfect time. 
even when God asked him to do something disturbing and unsettling, to lay it all on the line. And so now God simply restates the promised blessings that we've been seeing all the way through this series. I just want you to notice one other little detail at the end of verse 19. The narrator tells us that after all this, Abraham stayed in Beersheba. may not seem that significant until we realize that Beersheba means well of the sevenfold oath. Bear in the mind that in the Bible, the number seven is God's number, the number of completion and fullness. So I think the narrator wants us to know that Abraham continued trusting in all the oaths or promises of God. Now, of course, it was Jesus who faced the truly ultimate test of faith. He trusted his father and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And that's why the writer of Hebrews urges us to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes not on Abraham, but Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Uh, let me leave you with the words of an old hymn, which I think neatly summarizes this message of Genesis 22. And I make no apologies if some of you, a certain generation, go out with this uh, chorus running in your minds all week. Let it be so. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows, are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. May God give us the grace to do that as a church. Amen.